Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. In Acts 13, we're going to pick up where we left off. Acts 13. So just to review, um, last week we uh, dealt with Acts 13 because there's a passage in there that Calvinists like to use constantly and make it say something that's really not saying. And the, the key phrase in this is um, in verse 48, and as many has been appointed to eternal life believed. And they capitalize on the word uh, appointed to reference their Calvinism. See, and they'll say, see, people are appointed by God or decreed by God to be saved. And what we looked at last week is that that's not exactly what the passage is trying to get across. And so I want to unpack that a little bit. I'm going to do a little bit of review. Every time you read a passage like that and it looks weird, like, hey, I, don't, I don't understand what that's saying then you got to go back and read the whole context. And like we did last week, we read Acts 13, and we realize that there's a whole argument that Paul is making. And just to refresh our minds on Acts 13, Paul is at a synagogue. He is talking to Jews, and he's talking to God-fearers, Gentiles that may or may not be saved, not sure, but they believe in the God of Israel. They haven't believed in the Messiah yet. And Paul is making the point by going through Scripture to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He's using the Word of God to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he jumps to John the Baptist, if you recall, and so goes through the history of Israel about who was the uh, uh, those who were in charge of Israel, with Moses, the judges, the kings, and then he jumps to John the Baptist, a prophet, and he says, John the Baptist came and proclaimed this. He was the way shower, you know, the one that's making the path straight, showing that Messiah is coming. And the point we made about that is that John put Israel in place. He put Israel in a position to be able to receive the Messiah. And if you want to use different words like arrange, if you want to use to place in order, to assign in place, that's what John was doing. So when John calls people in Israel to repent, he's not necessarily meaning for salvation. It's repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or near, that the Messiah is coming. So repent of what? Well, they were to get their hearts ready. They were to expunge any idols out of them, particularly the rabbis, to get rid of the rabbi teachings and anyone that would teach contrary to the Messiah. So John basically prepared the way and got Israel in place. And if you recall, there was a parable about Israel that we referred to of a demon-possessed person, a man, that someone cleaned out the house, exercised the demon out, and you recall the demon left, but because the house was clean, but nothing had come back into the house to fill it, seven more demons came in, and, and his position was worse than it was from the beginning, and that was a picture of Israel. 
John was the one in that parable about cleaning the house, removing the one demon, so to speak. He prepared Israel. So that's what Israel, this whole idea of repentance that you'll see coming from the from John the Baptist is getting Israel ready to receive the Messiah. Okay. With that in mind, that's the context in which you must read verse 48. That's the overarching theme. Okay? So let's continue to read. And we'll start in verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the thing spoken by Paul. So Notice how bad it got in the synagogue. They started to blaspheme. They themselves, Jews, started to blaspheme in the synagogue. This is how bad it got. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. I mean, with confidence, and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Why? What's the principle? First, uh, sorry, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. To the Jew first, and then the Gentile. Okay? So what does that mean? That in your evangelism, your personal evangelism, to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. You have an element in your evangelism that's targeting Jews. Now you say, well, I live in Bakersfield. There's not too many in Bakersfield. I know. So what do I do? You give to organizations that are doing Jewish evangelism. And I get that from Romans 15, 27. So you support, you know, Friends of Israel. You support Chosen People Ministries. You support like our own missionary Cyril, who's a Jew, who's witnessing the Jews in L.A., you support them. So there's got to be an element in your giving that goes to Jewish evangelism. That has to be part of your giving. I know people tell you, bring it to the storehouse, and put all your money in the store. We're not the storehouse. That's the temple. You can't use Old Testament language and refer to the church. There's five different areas of giving. Jews, missions, ministries, local church. Well, I, I, let's put missions and ministry together, okay, as one, so you could have missions or ministry there. Uh, local church, right? Family. Those are the five areas the Holy Spirit will direct your giving to. And it might be from week to week he changes the direction, he changes the amount, and he changes the who. But he will, he will, give, it will inspire you to give into all five areas at different times and different amounts. So this whole idea, I'm going to give 10, 10% to the local church, that's out of compliance with New Testament giving. New Testament giving is Holy Spirit directed in those five areas. So the churches in America make the fatal mistake by not going to the Jew first. And that they're going to get called on that one because it's right there. Paul's doing it through his whole ministry. He's, he's, he is doing it. You watch him. So what he's, then he goes... But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, to the Jew first, then the Gentile. For so the Lord has commanded us. Now, I want to unpack that phrase, but since you reject it. So there, right there in that passage, it is saying that 
you can reject God's offer of salvation. So that goes right against irresistible grace. It says, since you reject it. Okay? So let's continue on. And you judge yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Now, he's saying, since you reject it, you actually are bringing a judgment on yourself. And the judgment is, you consider yourself unworthy of the sacrifice of the Messiah. That's a weird way of saying things. What does he mean by that? What, so basically, if someone today, you present the gospel and they reject it, they actually are saying that they are unworthy to receive the everlasting life from Messiah. How are they saying they're unworthy? Well, okay, let's go back. What did the Jews think of how they got salvation? Works, okay? So keeping the law and genetics. Basically, I'm Jewish, and I keep the law, I'm an automatic, okay? So that's the basic premise that all the Jews were working at at that point in time, except for the remnant. Okay, so when, they say, when Paul says you count yourself as unworthy to receive the Messiah, it's not that he's so much that he's talking from the perspective of the Jewish person. He's talking from the perspective of a theological position. The Jews thought they could earn their way to heaven, so therefore there is no need for the Messiah. They're going to work their way to heaven. And therefore, they judge themselves. So the idea is it's, a, it's kind of a, a very blasphemous position to be in, okay? If a person believes they can work their way to heaven and bypass the Messiah, they're in a very arrogant position. Very arrogant. They could be the nicest neighbor on the planet to you. They could be your friend at work. They could be a family member, and they're so nice. But the fact that they decide to rebel against the gospel and not accept it puts them in a category of the most the most, I don't know what you want to say, I guess the most prideful position you could possibly be in spiritually. And hence, when you take that position and you're that prideful, you have now put yourself in the category of being unworthy for salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? A person is unworthy of salvation when they decide that they're going to do it on their terms. You're now not worthy of salvation. Does that make sense? So when a person is humble and spiritually broken and, and receptive to the gospel, they are putting themselves in a theological position to be worthy of salvation. Now, you're, I know what you're going to say. No one's worthy of salvation. That's not how the term is being used. Yeah, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No doubt about that. We all deserve hell. That's not what, that's not what Paul's talking about. The idea of deeming yourself unworthy means theologically that you are rejecting the Messiah. And since you reject the Messiah and you've taken that stance against him, you're unworthy to receive the, the gospel now. You've put yourself in that state that you're unworthy. Could you get out of that state? 
Yes. How could you get out of that state? You choose to be humble and receive the Messiah. So understand, not being worthy of the gospel is a theological state that a person puts themselves in when they desire to work for salvation. The minute you decide, I'm going to go by faith and come to faith of Messiah, you now make yourself worthy of being given salvation. Because what does God require for salvation? Faith. And to have faith in the Son means that you already have to be spiritually broken and you have to be humble. There's a precondition, so to speak, for it. Um, so the person, so I hope that's clear. It's not a permanent position, and it, but is a prideful, arrogant position that makes the person, while they're in that state, unworthy of salvation because they want to they want to earn it. Does that make sense? Any questions so far on that one? That's a little tough. Okay, let's move on. Go ahead. There are things that will happen in the person prior to salvation that puts them in a receptive state. Does that make sense? They the things start happening in their life. You know, they lose a loved one, lost their job, those kinds of things. Believe it or not, there are unbelievers who I got to get off alcohol, man. I am addicted to alcohol and I, I got to get off of it. I know it's not good for me. I know it's, it's tearing me up. I got to do that for my family's sake or whatnot. But sometimes them getting off the addiction actually puts them in a better state to be receptive of the Messiah. Yeah. So sometimes something needs to happen to the person to get them in the right state. Sometimes they have to be in the hospital. Sometimes they have to be near death, right? Sometimes they have to be flat on their back. No options. Right. So if it's prison, cancer, whatever, you don't want to, you know, whatever wakes them up because salvation's on the line. But this is the, the way I would pray. Lord, put them in a circumstance with the people around them that makes them receptive to your call. And that typically means hard times, right? Typically, typically, typically. Or they lose a relationship or whatever. Okay, that's called, the person could repent per se, but they're like, like let's take the alcoholic. I'll use that as an example. So the alcoholic, he's still an unbeliever, and he actually repents of the sin of alcoholism, whether he knows it or not, right? He repents of that sin. He's not doing it for salvation. He's just doing it say, I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it for my health. But he did stop being an alcoholic, which is good biblically too, right? Because we're not supposed to be a drunkard. And so even unbelievers can repent of something even though it doesn't necessarily mean salvation. They stop doing their old way of life, so to speak, or whatever. But that old way of life was a barrier for them to see the Messiah, that old way of life. And, and so it starts with preconditioning the person for salvation, lending itself to conversion, lending itself to the conviction that would come on that individual. If you understand that, then you'll understand what John the Baptist was trying to do. That's what he was doing with Israel is getting them in a preconditioned state to receive the Messiah. 
just like you would do, would on an individual. But Israel, it's the Jews right there are saying, we we judge ourselves to be in the state of unworthiness because we we think we can earn the salvation and we don't want the Messiah. And so there's a preconditioning happening. He goes, and so behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, there's a statement earlier in the book of Acts, and Paul will make this point too. And he goes, and we're going to turn to the Gentiles, and they will respond. They will respond. How can he make that kind of statement? The Gentiles don't even have the Scriptures, but the Jews do. Why can he make such a bold statement about Gentiles who don't have any special revelation? That's right. So the Gentiles got themselves, they were in a more receptive state, no doubt about it. And I want to talk about why Israel was not in a receptive state. Now, you know they were following the rabbis. They had a different version of salvation. But here's what happens. Don't forget this principle. The Jews had special revelation. The Gentiles didn't. The Gentiles had general revelation. There's a big difference behind that. When you have special revelation, that means a prophet is talking to you. They're laying down Scripture. You got Moses and the law. You have the writings, right, the wisdom literature. They had it all, all 39 books. That is defined as special revelation, okay? When you spiritually reject special revelation, you go blind. It's an automatic. To whom much is given, much will be required. They had that special revelation, which should have made it so easy for them to accept the Messiah, but yet they turned on that special revelation, and the minute they turned on it, they go blind. Yeah, whether it's in the desert or 40 years waiting for the temple to be destroyed, the penalty was because you got special revelation and you reject special revelation, then you're going to go blind. Now, let's go into today. The Gentiles in the Western societies have had access to special revelation, haven't we? For a long time. Bibles on every corner, churches everywhere. And what's happening to the Gentiles now? Huh. Take it or leave it. I don't want to read my Bible. Oh, so you're turning your back on special revelation. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, then your times are over. The, the time, or sorry, the, the, the fullness of the Gentiles is coming to an end. So what happened to Israel is now happened to the Gentiles. You Gentiles, you've had a Bible all your life. You probably have dozens at your home, and you don't even read them. So I'm now going to turn back to my people. So the same phenomenon is happening. And so it has to do with accepting or rejecting special revelation. Okay, so he goes, I have set you as a light to the to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, look what their response was. They were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, with the context, with the context that we just read, and understanding setting the stage, the word in the Greek is in the perfect passive participle, okay? So all that to say is this. There's an action being ha ha that, that is happening to the Gentiles, okay? There's an action. They're, they're, 
They're passive in this, okay? But they're being arranged in order, in order to be receptive to the gospel. So when you see the word um, appointed, it's esan tata noi. It doesn't necessarily ordain from the foundation of the world. It doesn't mean that. It means this, to arrange, to place in order, to assign a place, to set in line, being disposed to, in a position for, prepared for, and aligned. So if you understand, the root word is tazo in, in, in the Greek. It doesn't mean to eternally decree. It means that this people group has been put in a place that they now are receptive to the gospel. Just like an individual could have preconditions, well, he got sick, he almost died, and now he's, he's wanting to know about Jesus. Something happened to them that's making them receptive to the gospel. Do you see that the context determines and the word determines what the, the pointing is? It is not an internal decree from God. Notice in the, in the passage, it doesn't tell you who the actor is. In verse 48, does it say that God appointed them to eternal life? doesn't say that. Does it say God appointed them to eternal life? It does not. Notice that the actor is absent. If God wanted to say, I'm sorry, if Paul wanted to say God decreed them from the foundation, he could just say it. God appointed them to eternal life. The actor is missing. Why is the actor missing? It is passive. It is happening to them. They're passively being set in place, just like Israel was set in place, but there's no actor. Why? There's no actor. What's happening? What's, what's the message Paul is trying to tell you? They are being prepared. They are being set in place, but who is the actor? Okay, so you have the Holy Spirit who convicts sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? So you already know that. He's not mentioning it, but we already know that, right? So that's part of the conviction. No, 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 nope, it's not the end. The Greek is passive. So the individual is not doing it. So it means that something's acting upon the individual or the group. Something's acting upon them. Something is setting them in place. They're passively just, just imagine them sitting on a couch. They're not doing the activity, but something's putting them in a place to be receptive to the gospel. Conscious, yeah. What is the conscience doing? It's convicting. Okay, so think about what we've talked about. We have general revelation, then you have specific revelation, okay? So the thing about it is they have not yet received specific revelation. Paul is going to give the Gentiles, this is who he is, he died for you. So they don't know any of that. They don't know, they don't know Scripture, all the Gentiles know is general revelation, and you can add to that the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of their conscience. That's part of general revelation. So going on inside of them in their hearts as they feel guilty for their sin, 
They don't know what to do with it because they don't know how to get righteousness, sin, righteousness, judgment. So the, the, so where can we get this righteousness and judgment? I, because what I have done, I know that there's a God out there that's going to judge me for what I did, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then when Paul gives the revelation, the specific revelation, they will add content to how they're feeling internally in the conviction. Oh, so since I don't have my own righteousness, you're telling me I can look to him for my righteousness. Yes, you can look to him. He will satisfy God's wrath for your sin. Oh, okay, got it. So you're connecting dots in specific revelation. And then what about judgment? Well, judgment that the, the, the devil is going to be judged, that if you continue down this path, you will share in the devil's judgment, and he will get you out of it. Oh, so now I know what to do with that conviction. I place my faith in the Israel's Messiah. Oh, so what's been going on in the individual, creation has been speaking to the individual. They're responding. Their conscience has been speaking to the individual. History has been speaking to the individual. And providence has been speaking to the individual. That their life is not an accident. The things in their life is, is, is not luck. It's all lining up. And that leads them to be prepared to hear the gospel. It's general revelation. Now, don't get me wrong. God's behind general revelation. He set the whole thing up. But general revelation allows the freedom for the individual to either accept general revelation or not to accept it. And this is his point in Romans 1 and 2, okay? That if you, if you accept the, the general revelation, Romans 1, and you see that there's a creator, okay, that will lead you the, along with your conscience, Romans 2, and Romans 3 is the answer, is the Messiah. That's the stair step all the way through that. And so, again, you're talking about the Apostle Paul. He's talking to people that are, are already heard him talk like this. And so what, what sets people in order is if they respond to general revelation. And if they respond correctly to general revelation, then they will respond correctly to when special revelation is given to them specifically about the Messiah. And hence, they receive him. And that's why he says, and they will receive him because he knows the Gentiles are, are in a position now to respond. Now, do you know why they're in a position to respond? Now, we know general revelation, but there's something else that's happened. So Peter is told by you know, Cornelius to say, look, the gospel is going to go out to them. And, and so what, what, what has been determined by the Jerusalem church in Acts 15, Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So the Jerusalem church has made a declaration that now that Israel has rejected the Messiah as a nation, at this point in time, Israel's in a timeout, and God is now calling out the Gentiles to him. So something is happening. A time now is being offered to the Gentiles. And so that's why Paul can say, and they will respond, because he already knows what time he's in. This is Israel's sit-down, and now it's, a, it's called the fullness of the Gentiles. And so, that being the case, you can apply this to today. 
If a person already knows specific revelation, special revelation, like they know the Bible, right? They were they grew up in church. You took them to Sunday school. They went to Awanas, and and you did your best as a parent to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And if they turn on that and reject that, they will go blind. Now, they can come out of that blindness anytime they want, but they will go blind because they had special revelation, and they just tossed it away. They misinterpreted it or whatever they did. Therefore, this is why you're seeing such a lack of receptivity in America and in Western society. And this is why when you go to places like Africa and you go to places like China where they've never heard the gospel and all they've ever had is general revelation, why they're now more receptive. Because they're given the special revelation from missionaries or whatever, and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I want to believe in that. That's true. And so America is what's called in missiology a burnt-out district. They already have coined America that, a burnt-out district. America had its chance of all the camp town revivals and everything like that. The word of God spread through America. And now America is saturated with the word of God, and they still reject it. Well, guess what? You're going to end up like the Jews did. That's what happens. So that being the case, let me see what else is in that passage. And then it says in verse 49, and the word of the Lord was beginning, uh, was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and chief men of the city raised a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, what is this idea of shaking the dust off their feet? That's a very Hebraic idiom, right? A Jewish idiom. What does it mean to shake the dust off your feet to somebody? Move on. You're finished. Okay, so in the the Middle East, obviously, if you show the bottom of your foot, what does that mean? Obama did that to Netanyahu. Do you remember that? He put his feet on the desk. When and, and Obama and Netanyahu was across the other desk, you remember that? And Obama, Obama knew exactly what he was doing by putting his feet on a desk to a man from the, the Middle East. When you show the bottom of your sandal or your foot or whatever to someone else in the Middle East, what is that? It's total disrespect. It's total disrespect that you're not a respectable person at that point in time, that I need to get away from you, that you're toxic. There's something wrong with you. And so, shaking the dust off your feet, in order to do that, you would actually have to show them your sandal, the bottom of it, as you did that. And you shook the dust off your feet towards them. And you would be showing the bottom of your sandal to them. Shaking the dust off your feet means, I can't keep giving this person more special revelation. Okay? Because they've deemed themselves unworthy of it. And so this goes back to what Jesus said about casting pearls before swine, didn't he? You and I have to discern whether or not we got to stop on giving the information out anymore to a person. Look, if you've done it once, that's probably good enough. Jesus didn't repeat himself. He only said things one time. 
So you you give the gospel to somebody, you witness to a family member, loved one, whatever, and they re- they they reject it, they're counting themselves unworthy of salvation, shake the dust off your feet and quit giving them specific revelation. Don't give them any more revelation. Because you know what the what Jesus said would happen to you if you keep giving a pig that kind of stuff? What do they do? First of all, they're going to take what you gave them, the pearl, and stomp on it and trample on it. So they're going to disrespect the word of God. So don't do that. We don't want the word of God being blasphemed or disrespected. That's what they were doing to Paul in the synagogue. They're blaspheming, right? Okay, so we don't want that. And then he says, then what will happen to you? They'll not only just trample the pearl, what do they do? They attack you. They come after you. So they'll hurt you like they tried to do Paul. They tried to hurt him. So they went after him. So he's, it's classic. He stopped talking to him. He's not going to talk to him anymore uh, because they're trampling, blaspheming the word of God, and they're attacking the messenger. That's when you know you need to stop. Now, let me add one more thing to this. In Proverbs, the, the idea of casting your pearls before swine stems from the book of Proverbs. And the Proverbs say that if you keep giving a person information, then you're the fool. Now, why would it say that? It makes, it makes, you're speaking to a fool, but it actually turns you into the fool by you keep telling them stuff. That's right. So move on to where the need is. But how are you becoming a fool? Because you keep thinking that somehow you're going to change their mind. You keep thinking that, you know, if I just say it this way, then I know they'll hear me. Or you know what? I have a better idea. Instead of talking to them, I'm not going to talk to them anymore, Brandon, but I'm just going to leave scripture verses all over the house for them. I'm going to put it in his lunch pail as he goes to work, and the blood will be as high as the horse's bridle judgment passages and stuff. People have done stupid things like that. But they won't stop. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message, and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.